This is the Talk Editions podcast. No art must be free, but it can only be genuinely free as a result of a revolution. Are artists free today? I don't think so. This season on the podcast, we asked some of our closest collaborators to interview someone of their own choosing. Today, we'll hear from Ashkan Bazadi and Saharna Samwinejad interviewing Alan Woods. Ashkan is a longtime collaborator of Talk Ensemble. We'll be releasing an album of his multi-movement work, Love, Crystal, and Stone, which he wrote for Talk Ensemble this coming spring. Saha, in addition to being a brilliant scholar and Ashkan's wife, is one of our favorite people in the entire world. And we're so excited to hear the two of them speak with Marxist political theorist Alan Woods. Hi, my name is Ashkan Behzadi. And my name is Saharna Samoinejad. We are chilled to welcome our guest today, Alan Woods, to discuss the subject of art and socialism. Alan Woods is a Trotskyist political theorist and author. He is one of the leading members of the international Marxist tendency IMT, as well as of its British affiliate group Socialist Appeal. He is the chief political editor of the IMT's website in defense of Marxism. As a prolific writer, Alan Woods has extensively written on Marxist revolutionary theory, the history of Bolshevik revolution, and on current political events in books such as Bolshevism, The Road to Revolution, Marxism and National Question, and Marxism and Anarchism. Alan has also reflected on the dialectical relation between art, culture, and socialism in works such as Art and the Class Struggle, Capitalist Fetishism and the Decay of Art, and Figaro and the Revolution. Alan, before we start talking about art and socialism, could you please introduce us a bit to international Marxist tendency and its activities? Yes, with pleasure. The, the international Marxist tendency, uh, to which I have the honor of belonging, is uh, a revolutionary Marxist organization that's present and uh, working in about 40 different countries, in I think every continent in the, in the world. And uh, it is uh, based firmly on the ideological principles of Marxism expressed in the works of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Trotsky. We are defenders of the Russian Revolution and of all the fundamental ideas of Marxism, both in philosophy, politics, uh, and even art, if it comes to that, which is the subject of today's discussion. We run a very successful website called uh, In Defense of Marxism, which I think last year had about 2 million different uh, visits, actually. So it's, uh, and we, it's published in many different languages. We recently had a world school, by the way, which was attended by uh, six, six and a, 6,400 6, people from uh, many, I think, 30 odd different countries, no, 115 different countries, actually. So uh, it is um, quite a big, a, a major operation, I would say. And we are pleased to see that it is getting uh, support, growing support in in all countries, I would say. There is a common misconception about Marxism that equates it with economism. But when we look at the works of major Marxist political theorists, especially the theorists of the first half of the 20th century, we realize that reflections on issues related to art occupy a significant, if not in some cases central place in their oeuvre. 
why critical reflections on art, both about its inner life and its relation to society, has been so important to many, many Marxist theorists, including Trotsky and you? Well, you see, the, the, there is a kind of a caricature, a malicious caricature of Marxism, which says, says that uh, Marx, oh yes, Marx, he was the one that reduced everything to economics. You probably heard that uh, that uh, piece of nonsense. It is complete nonsense, of course, because you just think for a moment, how on earth can we reduce everything to economics? You can't. Uh, there's many more aspects to human existence than uh, economics, although, of course, the production of food and uh, clothes and and uh, and housing ultimately, of course, are the, are the main motor forces of history, if you like. Yes, but you can't reduce history to that. There are many other important things. Religion plays an important role, as you know from, from the experience in Iran. Of course, it plays an important role. Philosophy, uh, politics, all kinds of things. And, there, and therefore, Marx and Engels, by the way, wrote... Uh, 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 profusely about all kinds of subjects. Va it's a vast, uh, the, the, the sitting on the shelves behind me here, which you can see, obviously your, your audience cannot. 55 hefty volumes of Marx and Engels, which cover every, all aspects of human existence. And of course, an important aspect of human existence is art. And this is perhaps not sufficiently realized, you know. A book which I particularly like by a Austrian Marxist called Ernst Fischer. I don't know if you know this book. No. It came out, I rec recommend it. It came out about, uh, well, in the early 1950, about 1950, I think, with the title, The Necessity of Art. Mm -hmm. Now that's an interesting title, isn't it? I mean, you might like art, you might dislike art, you might find it interesting, you might find it boring. Yeah, but is it necessary? Now that's the question. Is art, we know that food is necessary. Clothing and houses are necessary, as I've said. Is art necessary? Now, you see, you, you go into somebody's house and there's a, there maybe a painting on the wall. Yeah, but nobody nobody ever looks at this painting. It's as if it might be there or not there. It's as if it's invisible. Nobody looks. It's, it's a mere adornment. It's an ornament. That is certainly not necessary. And many aspects of, of modern art, I would say, unfortunately, are far from necessary. One of the tragedies of the modern period is that uh, it's, it's an aspect which is alienated from men and women. They really feel, the majority of society feel alienated, and it's not surprising. I think it was Engels that once wrote, I think it was Engels, I'm hoping to be corrected, wrote that uh, in any society, in which art, science, and government are the privilege of a few, of a minority, that minority will always abuse its position to acquire power over the majority. Now, that's an interesting thought. And therefore, the struggle for socialism, the struggle for revolution, isn't just a question, it is a question, of course, of struggling for better conditions, of, uh, for a loaf of bread, for a roof over your head, for basic rights, to, for a job and... Uh, health and uh, pensions, all these things, of course, are important. But it's more than that. You can't reduce that. That's why I come back to the question. You cannot reduce everything to a question of the, the Bible says, you know, the Christian Bible says, Jesus Christ says, man, man does not live by bread alone. That's very important. Trotsky uh, quoted that, actually. He said in one of, his, one of his, I think one of his articles written in the 1920s is entitled, Not by Politics Alone Does Man Live, or Woman Live, but there's a human 
species. And therefore, this is an important part of life. And the purpose of socialism is to raise the human spirit above this humiliating struggle for the animal struggle for the bare conditions of existence for a loaf of bread is far more than that. If it is to mean anything, socialism must mean genuine emancipation, which means a spiritual emancipation, a spiritual uplift of the whole of society, such that art, science, and government will cease to be the minority, the possession of the monopoly of a minority. That's one of the fundamental purposes of revolution, in my understanding. And Trotsky undoubtedly wanted to attract the best of the intelligentsia, the artists, and so on, being inspired by this great act of social emancipation to the revolution, to the revolutionary ranks. Of course, I add uh, quickly that uh, if we Marxists are going to get uh, art artists interested in Marxism and revolution, then we should take an active interest. We should show the artists that we are also interested in what they have to say. And art, of course, is a very powerful mode of human expression, which, of course, we should definitely have a dialogue. That's what I would suggest. So a, a fruitful dialogue between Marxists and, and, and artists, of course. I'm very happy that you brought up the importance of such dialogue as um, one of the main goals of uh, the interview today was actually the same, the same reason. But unfortunately, when we talk about the relation of communism and art, people often associate that art with social realism or propaganda art. But in reality, this relationship was much more complex. Could you talk about the impact of the socialist revolutionary movements, and in particular the Bolshevik revolution, on the explosion of avant-garde artistic movements? Well, you know, for me as, as a Marxist, the October Revolution of 1917 was the single greatest human event in history. Uh, that's, I realize that's saying a lot, but the reason it was, was such a great event is that here for the first time, if one puts aside the, the brief and tragic experience of the Paris Commune, but here for the first time, the mass of the people rose up against their oppressors, overthrew the old regime of, of which it lasted hundreds of years of brutal oppression and, and, and at least began the, the great historical task of the socialist transformation of society. I say that they began it, they couldn't succeed ultimately because of the very backward conditions once the revolution was isolated under conditions of frightful backwardness, poverty and starvation and so on. It couldn't really succeed. Yes, but nobody can take that away from the Russian people, the Soviet Union. Colossal task and a colossal transformation. Now, I can speak from personal experience because when I was younger, I studied in the Soviet Union in the 1970s, 1970 to be precise, I was in the Soviet Union. That was at a time of bureaucratic rule of people like Brezhnev and so on and so forth. Nothing to do with the spirit of the Russian Revolution. But I happened to meet an old lady by accident, an old lady. And she had been, I think, 14 years in one of Stalin's concentration camps. She wouldn't talk about that, she didn't want to talk about it. But one day I asked her a question, can you remember what, it, what the revolution was like? And I'll never forget, you know, I'll never forget the look on that old lady's face. It was a, she'd been crushed by years of suffering and so on. 
deeply etched upon her face as well. And her face suddenly lit up. I can, I can see it now. Her eyes lit up like the sun. And she said, oh, in Russian, the word is, you, don't, you have no idea how that was. You have no idea. She uses a Russian, which means, Padyom means like a spiritual uplift. What an uplifting experience, she said, for all of us. It was for, that's for, for millions of And then, of course, after a while, her face darkened again as she, she muttered under the breath, not like now, not like now. And, uh, but you see, this was, and, and there's been decades now of a vicious, systematic campaign of calumny and slander directed against the Bolsheviks and against the Russian Revolution, presenting it in a false light as a, a barbarous act of savagery, or, you know, you know the kind of thing, that, 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 that kind of rubbish that they write. They, they forget that the essence of a revolution is that, you know, the great English poet William Wordsworth was in France in, at the time of the revolution. And he said, like a lot of the intellectuals and artists at, and writers at the time, sympathized wholeheartedly with the French Revolution. And he wrote in his wonderful work, The Prelude, Bliss was in that dawn to be alive. Bliss was in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. Now that, those lines, that expressed the reality of revolution as an uplifting experience. And this was felt by millions of people, not just workers and peasants, as I've said, but the best of the intellectuals and artists and composers, they were inspired by it. Now it's true later on this promise, this blossoming of uh, this flourishing of art and culture and so on was crushed under the leaden rump of the uh, Stalinist bureaucracy. That's quite true. By the way, socialist realism has got nothing to do with socialism and less to do with realism. It's the, that, that is the product of the bureaucratic counter-revolution, which crushed the, physically crushed the Russian Revolution. And uh, of course, the new cast of upstarts, of bureaucratic upstarts, were not just reactionary, not just corrupt to the marrow and so on, but profoundly conservative in their outlook and, uh, you know, Philistines, they were cultural Philistines. No, Stalin had no interest in that, don't make me laugh. No, none of them. Trotsky once described the poetry of one of the associates realists, I think it's Biedne, uh, I think it was. He described, he said, that's not poetry. It's like the grunting, it resembles the grunting of a pig. You know? And the art, uh, with, with some exceptions, I mean, there's always some exceptions, something, some works are tolerably okay. But it's, it's like it, most of the sources realist painting, to me it reminds, the, it's, it doesn't rise above the level of the kind of pretty pictures on chocolate boxes you see in supermarket shelves. It's, it's the art of a Philistine, but that faithfully reflects the art of the, the bureaucracy, which couldn't tolerate any deviation at all. Now, that has nothing, what has that got to do with the, with the Bolshevik period of the 1920s? which was characterized by an enormous flourishing of art, of music, of culture, of architecture, people like Tatlin and so on, and uh, many schools of all kinds of constructivists, futurists, acmeists, symbolists, you name it, all contending with each other, struggling with each other and so on, you know. And what Trotsky tried to do was to, he tried to attract these people to the, uh, to the cause of communism, which was a very laudable thing to do. 
and uh, that's a, that shows a gen that that is the reality of 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 revolution and art. Put it that way. It's a, it's an inspiration. You just criticized the crude propagandist tendencies of social realism, but I'm wondering if you defend any kind of propaganda art, or if you can think of any valuable artistic works that were created to directly intervene in a political or revolutionary cause. <laughs> well, that's a difficult question. Didn't I say I didn't? I, I wouldn't. Allow, <laughs> I wouldn't allow any difficult questions. What is revolutionary? No, that's an interesting question. That, that is a very interesting question. Let me put this put the, the, this to you. Uh, art could play a, a direct role <clears throat> in the revolutionary struggle. It has done. I mean, you go back to the 19th century, the, the, the paintings of Delacroix, you know, freedom uh, leading the people to the barricades and things like that. The, 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 yes. Um, and in the Russian Revolution, you get a poet like Mayakovsky, I think he was a fantastic uh, uh, poet. Because I'm able to read Russian, of course, I studied Russian. He wrote a poem called Nash March, Our March, which describes a revolutionary march. You probably know the translation. But the, the sound of it, it sounds like a march, isn't it? With your permission. Bietiev, Ploschedy, Buntev, Topot, Vyshe, Gordy, Kalov, Geriana. And our heart is a drum. Wow, that's, that's revolutionary art. That's revolutionary poetry. And also he did wonderful um, posters. You know, you've probably seen these posters with the Mayakovsky. Is, are these posters great art? Well, I'm not sure whether we could call them great art, but they're certainly very good art. Uh, but that's one of the very few examples I can think of where, where art and propaganda can reach high levels. Normally speaking, I have to say that art is not propaganda. And art cannot be propaganda as such. They're two different things. Politics, if you like, I'm a revolutionary politician. Politics expresses the ideas. It can also express emotions because we have to, you know, base ourselves on people's emotions, that's true. But it's basically an appeal to the intellect. Now art may or may not appeal to the intellect, but that's not its fundamental role in my opinion. That more, it, it, it appeals to deeper things, deeper emotions and human emotions and passions and so on, which it can do, which other, other forms cannot do in the same sense. So let me give you an example. Pablo Picasso, he, as you, as, you, as you know, he was a member of the Communist Party and he was certainly a committed, a committed artist. But he, wrote, he, he did a wonderful work of art. I think, from my personal view, I think it's the greatest work of art of the 20th century. Guernica, which you must know this. And here is a, is, is a violent protest, a passionate protest against the barbarism of fascism and the, the civil war and so on, you know. Yeah, but is it propaganda? I, this is not propaganda. This is genuine art. Nobody told Pablo Picasso that I did that, but he wasn't pursuing any kind of dictates. Or, it came straight, it's a cry straight from his soul, from his heart, from his inner self. That's what makes it great art and not propaganda, you know. But does it play a political role, a revolutionary role? I think that it does. 
in the same way as the paintings of Goya, for example, one of my favorite artists. You see those paintings where he describes the horrors of war and so on. That's profoundly, it's, it's revolutionary. Yeah, but it, 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 it's, not, it's not trivial. It's not propaganda. Let me put it this way. Trotsky always argued, and I agree with that, that, that art must be free. Art must be free. Artists must be free. Are artists free today? I don't think so. I don't think so, not for one minute. They're supposed to, theoretically, they're free. In practice, they're not. They're subservient now under capitalism to big business and the banks and the, the people who own the theaters and the people who own the publishing houses. And so, so don't talk about freedom, you know. Art must be free. It cannot be dictated to either by the church or the mosque or the imams to refer to Iran or, or, or the state or a revolutionary party. It's not our, not our business to tell artists how to paint. It's certainly not the business of artists to tell us how to run, run a revolution. <laughs> I think one would be as bad as the other. The results would be not very good. No, art must be free. But it can only be genuinely free as a result of a revolution and a fundamental transformation of society, I think. And therefore, artists, if they are serious about things, should really be revolutionaries. Because revolution is the only way that can save art and culture, which is now threatened with barbarism and the capitalism, frankly. Along with the decline of socialist revolutionary movement around the globe, the discourse of political art didn't disappear. It has rather taken a very different characteristic Instead of primarily dealing with anti-capitalist forms of resistance, today we see that the focus of most forms of political art is on identitarian forms of struggle or liberation. Today we see that the focus of most forms of political art is on identitarian forms of liberation and struggle. What is your take on the art forms whose ideological ground is based on the discourse of identity politics? Well, you see, look, we, li we live in a world which is, uh, it's like living a nightmare, isn't it? We, we live in a world full of horrors, if you could take that point of view. But we've been here before, you know, in history. These, these horrors, they're symptoms, they're symptoms of an, of an underlying disease, of a system a socio-economic system which has reached its limits, which can't offer anything more to the human race. It's in a blind alley, and therefore it's dragging the whole of society down. And this, of course, has got many, many manifestations, including uh, the oppression of women and of gays and of black people and so on. That's true. But the, the question is this. <clears throat> if I go to the doctor with symptoms, I don't expect the doctor to dwell on the symptoms all the time or to take out a handkerchief and start to cry, you know, because I've got these symptoms. I expect him to provide, or her to provide me with an accurate diagnosis of what's the what is the underlying cause of all this. Without that, they can't provide me with any solution. And that's the problem with identity politics. It's, I, th I think it's a reactionary phenomenon. I'll, I'll be quite clear about it. And it, it. It's reactionary because for two reasons. First of all, it doesn't deal with the cause of these things only the symptoms. Secondly, it it's profoundly divisive. Now, the, the working class has only got one uh, power in its hand, and that's its unity. 
we are in the business of trying to unite the workers and all oppressed people. There are many oppressed people and so on. Should unite around the banner of, of the revolutionary struggle, that's true. But if you start to divide people, you know, oh no, it's a question of the of the blacks, or it's a question of this, or it's a question of the of the gays, or it's a question of then you're in trouble. And and the results are quite pernicious, quite very bad, divisive results, which of course suits the ruling class very well. So this is a reaction. I'm firmly convinced this is a reactionary phenomenon which should be combated. No, we stand for the unity, the sacred unity of the working class, which is the main class in society which produces all the wealth and so on and so forth. The central oppression is the, the exploitation of the working class, whether it's black or white or uh, Iranian or British or, uh, or Christian or atheist or, or Islamic. Let's make any difference. We stand for the unity of the working class. That would be Trotsky's position, I'm sure. Um, art, of course, well, does it play a role? It can, except to repeat the point that I don't think Trotsky ever tried to dictate uh, what artists should or should not produce or paint. That wasn't his uh, department. What he was trying to do was something different. He was trying to convince artists that in this period, it is necessary for artists, if they're serious people, to, to join the revolution in effect. <clears throat> and I think that that message is still, still valid. I can't remember of any work where Trotsky told artists what to, what to write or, or painters what to paint or composers what to compose. I think he'd be, he'd be quite horrified at the prospect. He would have said, no, no, I'm not an expert on this. It's up to you to do this. But the point I'm making is a different point. Alan, earlier you mentioned that artists must be free to explore. But I was wondering in what ways you define the artist's sense of commitment or their involvement in politics, especially at a time that the multiple crises of capitalism, ranging from economical political crisis to the environmental crisis to multiple humanitarian crises, and as if that was not enough, the current pandemic has reached a decisive moment. First of all, it's true what you say that, <laughs> you know, they say that the Emperor Nero used to uh, sing songs and play his, play his lyre while Rome burnt, you know. Um, art must, must have its eyes open, surely. And artists must look around and see what's actually occurring in the world. And then they should search their conscience and ask themselves, is it right with all these things taking place? And as you correctly say, even the future of humanity is at stake now. Marx said that the, the alternative was socialism or barbarism. Well, there's elements of barbarism already exist in society. Even in the advanced capitalist countries, let alone the so-called third world, which is a nightmare for, uh, for millions of people. Yeah, but the, the question is, it, it isn't, it's, no longer, it's no longer a question of socialism or barbarism. If capitalism is allowed to exist for a measurable space of time, the destruction of the environment, the climate change is occasioned by the poisoning of the ocean, the plastics and so on and so forth. And the, the oceans are dying actually because of the terrible pollution that takes place. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, it's all terribly contaminated and polluted in the search of profit. 
if that's allowed to continue, well, the, the consequences for, even for the existence of life on earth will be put into question. Certainly the existence of civilization itself will be put in, 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 into question. And therefore, is it even conceivable that an intelligent person, never mind about an artist, could turn his back on this and ignore it and pretend that it wasn't taking place and hope they would go away? I don't think so. I wouldn't think much of such a person as that. And therefore, surely art must say something meaningful to the world, to people, as Picasso did. And that's that would be great art. The art which unites the particular to the universal. That would be great art. And I greatly look forward to that art emerging out of this, uh, this mess. But the other side of the coin is whether the artist should play, play an active role in trying to change society. I think so. I hope so. It is my fervent hope, and I hope that this interview might perhaps serve a useful purpose in that respect. And I would appeal to all artists, painters, actors, musicians, composers, to seriously consider this. Sometimes I give lectures, mainly with students, and at the end somebody will say, well, Alan, it's very interesting what you have to say, and I sympathize with a lot of your arguments, but um, no, I just want to live my own life and uh, leave it alone and uh, carry on my own way. <laughs> yeah. you and my answer is this, my friend, you, th you think you can... You think you can avoid politics? You think you can avoid it? Well, let me tell you, you might not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. And one of these days, politics will come to your house and knock on the door. You can hide under the bed. You can lock the door. One of these days, politics will come and knock on your door. And then what are you going to do? Usually at a very inconvenient hour. In the beginning of this interview, you spoke of how Trotsky took upon himself the laudable task of appealing the best of the intelligentsia, including avant-garde artists of his time, to join the cause of a proletarian revolution. How do you think a revolutionary organization like IMT can do to get the avant-garde and experimental contemporary artists become interested in Marxism and take more active role in the struggle for socialism? Well, that's a good question. Uh, well, first of all, I think that uh, we, we should show an interest in what uh, creative people are doing in the, in the world of the arts and so on and so forth. Uh, show an active interest in, in their... Of course, there's a lot of experiment. As I've said before, paradoxically, I am a, a revolutionary, but I'm also a, a very conservative sort of person <laughs> in my tastes. And, uh, but nevertheless, uh, you see, I said art, art must be free. It must be free to experiment. experiment. It, it, there's an analogy in the sense with science, isn't there? You know? Sci the progress of science over, over, over thousands of years depends on experiments. Most experiments, however, are failures. In the sense, they don't give the results which are, which are desired. But even an, even an experiment that fails is still of use. You know, it still shows us the way forward. But another question altogether is that, as I've said earlier, any thoughtful person, any person above all that considers themselves to be creative and interested in the, in, in the act of creation, surely must open their eyes and see what's occurring in the world and take sides. 
Make up your mind, take sides, participate in. Otherwise, uh, you will be just uh, uh, an impotent onlooker. And in fact, you'll be as, as assisting the maintenance of the status quo by, by so doing. No, no. I think artists, if they're serious people, must become active, of course, you know. Well, surely, I asked the question, where are the Bertolt Brechts of today? Where are the Kurt Weils of today? Where are the public? I think they're there, by the way. They are there. They are present. But of course, their work is suppressed. They say art is free. Art is not free. You don't control the art galleries. You don't say what works will be shown and what will not be shown, what will be bought and what will not be bought, because it boils down to money, you know, or uh, the theatres and so on and so forth. Now, of course, there's an existential problem in England, I think, and everywhere else, that many theatres are threatened with closure because of the, the, uh, the COVID-19 problem. It is a serious question. And uh, where are the revolutionary artists? Well, I hope I'm speaking to two of them. <laughs> so we have to start somewhere, no? We have to. And by the way, I was very delighted when you contacted, uh, although I'm rather busy, I'm afraid, but I was very pleased to, to be contacted because I feel very strongly about this. And it's a worthwhile, worthwhile work that you, that you comrades are, are doing. It's a very important work. Let me just finish on this note. I don't know how much time we've got left. I don't know. Where are these artists? Well, I'm sure that they exist, you know. Is that the, the very good artists who, or the young artists who are coming up and so on and have these ideas, they are being blocked. You know, the people like Damien Hurst and so on, they, they give them a pile of money because it's, it's a business proposition. It's obvious, for goodness sake, just to look at the man. You know. He's a multimillionaire. He's... He's all right. He's got no reason at all to question the existing. Yes, but for every one Damien Hurst, there are probably a thousand struggling young artists who are have got an entirely different idea, but they're never shown. They're not, they're not given the opportunity. That's why I say that in order to open the doors, that's why I'm convinced that once the, the social revolution would take place, it would mean what? It would mean opening the doors to culture, to the to the mass of people. It, it, there's a cultural awakening. Socialism must be the genuine cultural revolution, not what they had in China, of course. It's an abomination. But by opening the doors of culture wide open and allowing the people to come through, you will also attract the best of the young artists and composers and writers who will be inspired, as they were inspired in 1917. And they will come forward. They will come forward. Uh, thank you, Alan. Thank you again for, for your time and for joining us today for this fruitful, informative discussion on the subject of art and socialism. I would like to also thank our listeners uh, who were with us today. If you are interested to learn more about this subject, I highly encourage you to visit uh, IMT's website in defense of Marxism and to look for Trotsky's and Allen's writings on the subject of art and socialism. Okay, well, it's very kind of you. It's been, been a pleasure for me to meet you both, and uh, hopefully we will we'll meet again and uh, discuss these things and also perhaps collaborate actively in, in developing both art and revolution. That was Ashkan Bezadi and Sahar Nasimunajad speaking with Alan Woods. 
The music in this episode is a collage created by Ashkan Bazadi using music by communist composers Conlon Nankaro, Luigi Nono, Alfred Schnitka, Kurt Weil, and Dmitry Shostakovich. If you like the Talk Editions podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find out more about Talk Ensemble at talkensemble.com, or you can find us on social media. Thanks for listening.